Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Battle. Red Radio. I'm Matt Weston, and this evening I'm joined by the biggest, the fattest, the drunkest from them all, our good pal BFD, and long lost, long time friend, diehard Chris. How are you guys doing tonight? What's going on, Matt? Hey, BFD, what's up? Remember, remember when we used to do the show together? Man, that was like a decade ago or something, wasn't it? <laughs> I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know we all we did the show, all three of us, in 13, um, the first year I wrote for the website. And it wasn't it was fun to do, but the season wasn't very much fun, you know, like I remember talking about how they were going to beat the Rams and fix the season. And then they lost by like 35 points and Yates came in and threw a pick six. And that wasn't all that much fun, but it's only gone up from there, though, you know. Man, 2013, I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a long time. Well, also another thing that was a long time ago was the Houston Oilers collapse against the Buffalo Bills in 1992. And so the last time we saw the Houston Texans play a football game, they went up 24-0 on the Kansas City Chiefs. And then they proceeded to give up 41 straight points and lose 51-31. And so I really kind of feel like with Houston football fandom, there's two separate entities or two sets of you know populations. And you have the people who are lucky enough to to be old enough to have watched the Houston Oilers play football and they played from the AFL all the way to the NFL from 1960 to 66 and they moved to Tennessee to become the Titans and the Texans became the 32nd franchise in the NFL in 02 and so in the past it's it felt like there was a separation between those two teams those who are who are alive and love the Oilers and then this new generation millennials and whatever you call them I don't know if they're called Zoomers or Generation Z or Doomers or I don't know what you call the the you know the 13 year olds now who only know that Deshaun Watson's good and everything about the Texans is good, um, but now it seems like after last year's collapse, there's finally a tether or an umbilical cord that binds these dizzy guy twins who are fans of the Houston football team. And so I feel like you know before we were separated, and then after going through you know last January's collapse since Kansas City, I think there's a there's a tie between us now. We're all you know one mash of Houston football fans. And so then kind of go back to this offseason, revisit it and see what that collapse was like. I went back and watched the game. I was, I think I was feeding whenever this game was going on and the, the Houston Oilers went up, were up 35, three and then proceeded to lose 41, 38 on the road. And again, the Texans were up 24, zero oh, uh, proceeded to lose 51, 31 on the road. No, 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 I, no, no, no. I thought we were doing an alternate version of this game. Like I thought we were going to say, to win 48 to three we're not doing did you lie to me 
I don't have enough drugs to to be able to make up for that. <laughs> you know, oh, you know, BFG, the, pa- the past isn't past. It's not even past yet, you know. So to, to start... <laughs> only... So to start this thing off, our resident expert here, Diehard Chris, actually went to this game. He went up with his family to Buffalo. So Chris, how did how was the experience? What was it like driving up there? Uh, what how did you feel as you were, you know, a young child, a child going up from Houston <laughs> to Buffalo to go watch this game? Yeah, we we flew up there, and it was just one of those things where my dad had said, "Hey, you know, instead of doing like a big old Christmas thing this year, let's just go to the playoff game." And, uh, you know, I was totally okay with that because uh, we were big fans. We had season tickets for a couple of years there. We actually had gone to the season finale game in the Astrodome the week before. That was also against the Bills that I think we'll probably touch on a little bit later, maybe. And uh, so, yeah, I was really, really excited. I was a huge, huge Oilers fan. I had stuff all over my wall and, you know, I had the starter jacket and all that stuff. So uh, it was a real exciting time. And, you know, it was it was really neat going up there because it was it was bitter cold, but it actually was uh, we actually caught a break. It was you know in the teens, low twenties when we went up there that first week of January, but that actually was kind of unseasonably balmy for Buffalo at the time. So it was pretty cool because you know we we flew up when we flew up there. Like a lot of the sports, like Bob Allen was on the plane, the camera guys were on the plane, and they basically traveled with us the whole time we were in town. So anytime oh, cool. we took a bus together. You know, Bob Allen was there and like the camera guy was there and a couple other reporters. So like we went to a restaurant together and, and, you know, they did a report from there. So it was kind of like they documented the whole, the whole trip. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun. I, I can get into more, some more specifics of the trip as we go along here, if you like, but there were a couple of, uh, there were a couple of bad omens that happened along the way that I thought, uh, and, you know, in retrospect, made me kind of go, Oh, that, that figures. Well, like, what's one that sticks out the most of these bad omens? Okay, well, we went to the Buffalo, the, you know, the American side of uh, Niagara Falls. Okay. And, um, <laughs> unbeknownst to us, you know, Niagara Falls at some point closes during the night. So we uh, were on this tour bus, and we were getting there pretty late, and we could see all the lights, you know, but you couldn't see over the horizon, really. You couldn't see the falls. We pulled up to the point where we get out of the bus and then start filing to walk towards you know, the, the lookout point. And as soon as the first foot hit the ground coming off the bus, the lights shut off and we were not able to see Niagara Falls. <laughs> One of the reasons that we were late to get to Niagara Falls is because during our, our drive to Niagara Falls, uh, some sort of a belt or something in the bus broke and we had to wait. Luckily, I guess that was in the olden times when the bus drivers actually could repair the bus too because he had that thing open and he like inserted a new like he had a he had the new belt ready to go and he and like we were only stopped for about an hour and a half i thought we were going to be stranded but he managed to fix it so uh we we got in you know we we were late but we didn't realize that the place was going to close so um that was that was kind of the big one we also got uh cut off by a guy in a bmw i don't know why i remember that so well but there's this guy in a black bmw who cut us off and the uh, bus driver had to hit the skids a little bit, and we uh, got a little bit of a scare from that. <laughs> so there was just a lot of little things that just all all has going. Well, hopefully the game goes well because so far this is a little bit scary. 
I uh, the only see my thing is like the only memory I have of the Oilers was I watched went to go watch him play training camp at Trinity University because I'm from San Antonio, and my dad and I went there and we're like stamping the bleachers and it started they were doing special team team drills and then it started to rain and this is probably like in in 1995 or something and they all went inside and they canceled practice and that was it and I don't even like remember their logo that much or anything and so it was fun watching this game mainly for just like aesthetic purposes. Yeah, so the kind of the, I guess the background to this game, the Oilers signed War Moon after his long time in Canada, where he played for the Edmonton Eskimos, and he won a, he won a Grey Cup there, and then he signed with Houston in '84. In '87, they made their first playoff appearance, and they didn't make in the playoffs for the next seven years. Um, they never made it to an AFC Championship game during this time. So in '87, they lost to Denver 10-34. In '88, they lost to Buffalo 10-17. In 89, they lost to Pittsburgh 23-26 in overtime. In 90, they lost to Cincinnati 14-41. In 91, they lost to Denver 24-26. And then they lost this game. And they also, the following year, they lost to Kansas City and lost to Jim Montana too. Um, So, Chris, like the year before, whenever they lost to John Elway, who actually had a drive where they started with the ball at the two-yard line, proceeded to drive all the way down, kick a game-winning field goal, and on that game-winning field goal, uh, Gary Kubiak was the holder, and he yep. actually had to take a bad snap, he did, put it yep. back together, and set it down for for Denver to beat Houston that game. And uh, it's funny how, how all that sort of works in football. Um, but what do you remember about the about the game the year before? Like, what were your expectations during the 1992 season? Well, my expectations for the Oilers in that era, when they're on the road, was basically always for them to lose. They were not they were not a very good road team. Um, but they, they seemed to do pretty well several times in the playoffs, you know, they wouldn't finish, but they would, they would kind of surprise you on the road and, and, and do much better than you expect until the actual, you know, game came to a conclusion. But yeah, I didn't really have much expectation because, you know, Elway was Elway. He wasn't, he wasn't the quite the legend yet. You know, obviously we were part of the reason why he became the legend and the drive part two with that 98 yard drive that you, that you just spoke of. So I didn't expect them to win. I expected them to compete. So I, I, I was pleasantly surprised that they had the halftime lead. And I wasn't at all surprised when John Elway, you know, did uh, performed his, his magic at the end there. I have a distinct memory of racing with my, uh, with someone, I, I forget who to, uh, to McDonald's at halftime to get something to eat because I was so wrapped up in the game and everything going on that day. I just hadn't eaten anything. And I, I just, for some reason, I have this really specific memory of like racing back to the house and turning the radio on to hear the start of the second half. And then, you know, as that game progressed, the Denver sky getting darker and darker. And it's, you know, <laughs> by the time it's the end of the game, it's a night game. And man, just that last drive, so heartbreaking watching, you know, there's a couple of, there's a couple of shots from, uh, you know, Elway when he's running out of the pocket, going out towards the sideline, about to complete a pass. And you can just see some of the Oilers defenders. You can just see it in their face. Oh, God. Oh, God. And they're sprinting as much as they can, trying to get to Elway. And then they're trailing the play after the completion. And just, oh, man. So it, it definitely made it to where I was not comfortable at halftime of the Bills game. That's for sure. Yeah. And that, that game, too, like El, like they tra- kept trying to spot Elway and they kept screwing it up. And it's kind of funny, like watching these tasks that you watch football now and you know, they're so much better at the game in 2019 than they are back then. And you're like, yeah, just don't go that far in the line of scrimmage, you know, hang out like two yards back. And, and it was like, it was that in LA completed 10 passes to Michael Young. And that was the entire, their offense. I, I really hated that. We're well, going back and watching that Denver game. I absolutely hated that team. 
Um, BFT, what did you, what like what did you think after the loss the year before, and what were your expectations for the '92 season? It's pretty much like Chris. I mean, when you're an Oiler fan, you were just dead set that that something was going to go bad, and, and it wasn't just it was it was about being a Houston fan, really. Especially if you grew up in the '70s and you had all the heart the early the late 70s and the early 80s with both the Astros and the Oilers there's always the expectation always hanging head that something is going to screw up something's wrong and so you had uh, uh you know Mike, Mike from you know in, in the 79 playoff uh uh the Phillies beating the Astros and the NLCS coming back to win that series you all as a Houston fan, you always had the expectation that something was going to go wrong. So lost to Denver the year before, didn't really. The only thing about the Bills game that really separates it is that we actually had hope for like a half. And so that is like what really is the difference maker in it, what, what really creates the heartbreak. We're used to We're used to all those playoff losses. We're used to the Astros losing to the Mets and in the playoffs in 86. Man, we were used to that. We were a nerd to losing. But we had hope for like an entire half plus of a game that we might actually do something. And that's what ultimately hurt the worst. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Like from my perspective, go back and watch these games of the three I've watched. The one that I, I kind of hated the most is the loss to Denver, just because it really did seem like Houston was a lot better than Denver was. Their offense was a lot better, but they just couldn't, you know, find a way to really kind of put them away. And there was just always these kind of like, and even this Buffalo game too. And, the game against Kansas City the year after, there was just always just like bizarre little mistakes that keep popping up and popping up where they're not able to fully finish a game or keep the other team alive or some just really strange thing happens that allows like a, a bizarre fourth down conversion that should never occur. Or like in this game, you have an interception go th- go between two defenders' hands at the same time and ends up hitting a tight end. And you just, I don't know, the, the juju here is just so weird though with the Oilers. Um, so entering this playoff game, in the 92 season, Warren Moon was injured for a good part of the season. He had a concussion. He broke his non-throwing arm. Cody Carlson started six games, and Houston went four and two with them as a starter. Um, Cody Carlson went to the same high school I went to in San Antonio, and they had pictures of him on the wall and stuff, and and that whole sort of thing. Um, but so they ended this Houston the season on a five and two win streak, and that included a win over Cleveland week 16 to secure a postseason berth. And then week 17, Buffalo was actually playing for a first round bye. And Jim Kelly got hurt in that game and sprained his knee, which led to Frank Wright coming in. And in Week 17, Wright completed 11 of his 23 passes for 99 yards and two interceptions to the passer range, 23.6. And Houston won 27-3 and won the right to go play in Buffalo um, the week afterwards. So, like, with this with this kind of sort of setup here and these teams kind of, like, numbers-wise, they're pretty similar. And Houston had a lot of talent. They just didn't. And the Bills had a really great run defense. And with Frank Reich, like, I know that both of y'all said that you, know, you don't you didn't really have any expectations of Houston winning at all, but since you're going against a backup quarterback and everything else, like Chris, did you actually think Houston had a chance to win this game whenever uh, you're heading to the stadium and that whole sort of thing? Um, a chance, yes, but but see, I, I was already I was already gripped by the cynicism of being a sports fan, which said that. It's going to be really tough for the Oilers to beat the Bills two weeks in a row. The Bills had just, you know, as you just mentioned, they were fighting for their playoff lives in Houston, and the Oilers beat them. 
And then to go to Rich Stadium, and you know, Rich Stadium was not an easy place to win at that time. Um, so I really just was like not thinking we had. I, I figured we would compete. I, I didn't expect them to win. Um, I don't really remember being too excited about the fact that Jim Kelly wasn't playing. That kind of seems silly now because Kelly was such a good quarterback. But it, I just think I, I think if I'd not been an Oilers fan and just damaged, then I probably would have been confident because, you know, like you said, it, it was the backup quarterback. I mean, even Thurman Thomas came out of that game at some mm-hmm. point. So, you know, he's a Hall of Famer and he, he didn't he didn't, wasn't even able to finish the game. So, you know, I mean, I didn't expect them to win just but the, but that was also just part of being a, a crippling, you know, <laughs> cynic of Houston sports, as, as BFD was saying. What did you think BFD entering this game before the pizza rolls filled you up, you know? So, yeah, going into the game, I really had high expectations. I mean, you know, Jim Kelly got to watch him. He was the original run-and-shoot quarterback. Watched him with the Gamblers. I knew he was a great quarterback. And so it was the sort of thing I was really excited to to fra- you know face Frank Reich instead of Kelly. You know, at least gave us a chance to win. I figured we'd lose the next game or, you know, we'd eventually lose whatever. But I, I thought going into that game, we had a chance. So, uh, so you mentioned the run and shoot. So I didn't. I like watching these Oilers games. I I still don't really understand the run shoot shoot is like what I kind of got out of it is you run a lot of draws. You have like the wide receivers are constantly in motion. They're audibling stuff, and it it really kind of seems like every time they come to the line of scrimmage, you don't really know what they're going to do, and they kind of change things based off the defense. Um, and it and. You know, like whenever you hear run and shoot, you kind of think like you run to set the pass, but it really isn't like that at all. What's the best way you can describe the run and shoot for those who don't know it is like me? The way I would put it, it was the original setting or using the passes to establishing the pass to set up the run. So it was what we see in modern football today. It was the first real iteration of what we see in modern football. So what you would have was you'd have a passing game that would go out into the flats that would do run a lot of curls that, you know, to to force the defense to put in a sixth uh, defensive back or to take out the, you know, to, to become a lighter team defensively. And so um, it, it was the, what you see when you watch the Bills game, and it really brought it back to me when I was re-watching the game the, uh, last night, is that you see Curtis Duncan. I mean, Curtis Duncan's just running, you know, flat patterns all game. That's all he's doing. That's the run and shoot using the pass to set up the run. So what you see then is you have the, the Bills, when they started the game, they had six defensive backs in. And you you have Curtis Duncan doing his thing. You have um, Haywood Jeffries you know, doing his thing downfield. But what was really effective early in the game was Lorenzo White, those draw plays, because he's going up against a much lighter front. He's going up against a lot of uh, defensive backs that he was just bigger than. And mm-hmm. so you see there was a, a fourth down that was converted. So the way that I, I think of the run and shoot is pass to set up the run. And then using the passing game has a run game, has that in turn. And then you let Lorenzo White do his thing because Lorenzo White was a big back. I mean, he was not a scat back by any means. He was a big dude from Michigan State. So he was just bulldozing guys. And that's what made him so successful. So um, that's... I have a lot to say about it, but I'm going to stop now. Go ahead. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way. That's a good way to put it. The other thing I, I didn't really understand watching this offense, too, was watching Warren Moon, how he would 
he throws right-handed, but he would drop back left-handed and then switch to the top of his drop back. And the only thing I could get out of it is that it kind of helps sell those draw runs they would have. And also just kind of like how I read the defense where he would, if he's reading left to right, he would drop back left. So that way he can pick that up and then switch to the right instead of reading the whole field at once. He would be able to read uh, each side of it. Does that make sense, Chris? Am I picking that up right? Because it, it really kind of kept me confused for the last, you know, this past week. Yeah, I didn't really notice that back in the day when I was watching um, the Oilers. But but yeah, seeing him seeing him play a little bit now, he's he just he looks so unorthodox out there compared to what you compared to what you you know normally see now. And I didn't even realize that um, he was 36 years old already when this game was played. So, you know, he was he was well towards the end of his career. But but yeah, you know, that that is accurate. And he seemed to really enjoy that that system. Um, I, I remember being excited about it when finding out that it was going to be happening in Houston there because, you know, of course, Jack Party was the U of H coach and he ran that offense there. So, he, you know, it's one of the one of those earlier examples of a college coach bringing his system to the pros. Um, and, and, you know, it was a lot of fun while it lasted, but as with everything in the league, you know, the league starts to figure it out after a little while. And then you, uh, you know, it's just incumbent upon your coach to, you know, adjust on the fly and make some changes. And um, I don't think that's what happened. <laughs> well, one, one thing is that, that that was, you know, another thing that the run and shoot brought was if you, if you watch, when you watch that game and when you watch the Oilers back in those days, is they always had a man in motion. That was the, they were the, really the first team who used that on a consistent snap to snap basis to put a man in motion to try to figure out what defense, if they're, if the defense is playing zone, if they're going to play man coverage, you always see Ernest Givens, man, that dude's always on the move. It seems like pre-snap. Mm-hmm. And so that was another part of it that, that brought that out and so the reason that you see warren moon doing what he's doing is exactly like you said it's giving him the ability to quickly scan the field but if you're warren moon and you've got lorenzo white to your left the best thing that you can do is when you're running that way to fake the handoff and then you're i'm acting all this out i'm miming this by the way for everybody so i want you to visualize me miming warren moon at home but is, is that you're watching him do these things, but it gives him a chance to scan the field. And what it does is it allows him to say or, or to, to internalize, okay, they stuck with zone. They, they went to man on me during the pre-snap. So that's what it allowed him to do. And that's what also, there was another thing that made that offense so special. That was a very effective and efficient offense in every way. Yeah. And, and it seemed like a lot of their, like a lot of the success of this offense came on the backside of these dropbacks where He'd like, you know, stare left and look right and there was a deep dig or like a quick slant or even just somebody sitting, you know, there on a quick curl that usually tend to be open where, you know, his eyes drew so much of the defense over in one direction. And uh, I know you mentioned Ernest Givens and they had four really good receivers in this team with Givens, Duncan, Jeffries and Slaughter. Um, personally, my favorite Houston Oiler of all time is Ernest Givens. Oh, like yeah. in that in that Denver game, he got pile drive onto his neck. <laughs> And came back in and continued to play. And uh, just like to be his size, like 5'9", like 185, and consistently go over the middle where you could get murdered going over the middle and like break tackles and actually drive the pile and never dri- never dropping passes at all. And a beautiful, you know, electric slide, uh, touchdown celebration. He's 100% the, the greatest oiler of all time. <laughs> I loved Ernest Givens. Uh, he, he was my favorite of the bunch. Uh, I remember a game that they played the uh, Atlanta Falcons in the Astrodome and 
Ernest Givens electric slide had started to get some, you know, sports center, you know, Chris Berman national attention for the celebration. But Andre Risen started doing his, I forget the name of his little dance that he did, but it was also, you know, kind of a big deal at the time. And they both scored touchdowns in that game. And I remember very distinctly Andre Risen scoring a touchdown. He started to do the electric slide and then he took his two hands and like swiped them to the side, like he's throwing it away. And then he did his dance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, Givens, Givens was my guy too. I, I, I always kind of wish that they worked harder to get him in open space more, uh, but that wasn't really how the offense worked. Um, one thing I want to add to about Webster Slaughter to uh, just sort of draw a parallel to the modern day Webster Slaughter joining the Oilers would be like if T.Y. Hilton joined the Texans. Now Slaughter used to kill the Oilers when he played for the Cleveland Browns back in the oh, day. Oh, really? Well, and, and this game too, Slaughter had a broken hand, right? And he was still returning punts and still, I know. Like, diving catches and everything <laughs> it's else. Impressive man. It was incredible. Uh, we'll talk about Haywood Jeffries this game. Cause he was kind of like the pedigree sort of player. But he had some big drops the year before against Denver, and uh, he had a, he had a good game here, leaping over some guys. But that Denver game, he was awful. He dropped two two, two touchdowns that game, and I really kind of grew to resent him, especially after watching you know Givens like pretty much just like getting murdered out there in the field, and watch Jeffries drop these like wide open post passes, you know. Um, but so so this game in the first half, the Oilers did score 28 offensive points. Uh, Warren Moon threw four touchdowns, and he actually started the game 12 14 for 108 yards and two touchdowns. And this is against a uh, you know Buffalo defense that had Bruce Smith, who's a Hall of Famer. Um, they had a Pro Bowl quarterback in Nate Odoms, an All Pro strong safety in Henry Jones, and they were like the seventh best pass defense in football um, this year as well too. One of the touchdowns was to Jeffries, make it 7-0. He hit Slaughter, another one, make it 14-3. And then he hit Duncan for 26 yards, make it 21-3. And then he hit Jeffrey again, make it 28-3 before the half. And on that last yard before the half, it also included a fourth-to-one conversion where Moon was able to draw the defense off sides by you know, moving his head and, and getting the nose tackle to jump off. Um, so like going back and watching this game, BFD, like why was Houston's offense so successful in this first half? And are there any plays in particular that really jumped out from that from that first half to you? So first, I just want to say that back in the day, we used to call him Haywood Drop Freeze. <laughs> so as much as I loved Ernest Givens, I really did not like Jeffries. I just, the dude dropped everything. He had Vaseline on his hands. Um, he always let the ball come to his body. Always. Oh, the worst body catcher ever. ever. <laughs> um, and he was, a, he was a first round pick. And it's just like, you, you picked that guy? Like on purpose? Oh, it was so frustrating. Anyway, uh, the reason they, I think the Oilers, yeah, Oilers were successful in the first quarter or in the first half was really because Buffalo was so light. And so they were able to to do the usual things that they were with the run and shoot, get hit Duncan, they hit uh, Jeffries on the, the jump ball down the field. But Lorenzo White was also run, running down people, running over people. And that was one of the big adjustments I know we're going to get to. But one of the big adjustments that the Bills made was they went back. They started out in the 3-4. They went to a 4-3 in the second series. But they got heavier in the second half. They brought in a third linebacker and they took off a, a fifth defensive back. Or, a, you know, they went to five defensive backs. That was one of the big changes that happened. And they started playing... Um, they started getting to moon a little bit more, which also really helped. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So I, I kind of transitioned. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's all good. I, that uh, you know, you mentioned Lorenzo Y a few times, and like he was like his '92 season was really kind of insane. Or I guess you called the '91 season the game, or the '92 season the game took place in '93 January. But uh, so the the Oilers had 363 carries, and Lorenzo Wyatt had 265 of them, and he had 1,226 yards and 4.6 yards in attempt and seven touchdowns, and he also caught 57 passes. So he had you know 315 touches this year, and they called him or they called the running back in the Oilers when the announcers did. They called uh, him the super back because they only have one running back and he gets the bulk of the carries. And White got injured the year after, but it's it really is kind of remarkable to see him because he's like 5'10", 230, just running people over, like running really upright. And also the shoulder pads are so big back then too that like he looks like he's wearing a refrigerator on his back, and uh, and like he's really quick as well too. And you know he was one of the guys that really kind of stuck out to me where he's he's definitely like a type of player specifically for you know this this brand of football and this kind of like where was our generation of football where and also you got to look at look about running backs you know getting soaked up and having their careers get destroyed pretty quickly and you know Lorenzo White's a good example of that with how much they used him so quickly that. You know, he was able to have any sort of longevity in his career too. And he was he was pretty shifty too. Uh, one one thing that I miss being a Texans fan now is successful screens. And man, they used to get Lorenzo on long screens. You know, I mean, of course, Arian had some success with that when Kubiak was around. But you know, the 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 days of successful running back screens are long since dead in Houston. Uh, but yeah, I was a big fan of Lorenzo White. And of course, BFD, you'll remember Gary Brown had that magical season a few years later. <laughs> and that the was same concept. Of, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 Same concept. I, but White was was one of my one of my favorite players too. I, I gravitated way more towards defensive players back then, but uh, but Lorenzo was definitely one of my one of my favorites on the offense. It, Gary Brown's hilarious because in that game against Kansas City, he has a double chin. <laughs> like he has yeah. a, a legitimate <laughs> double chin. He's playing running back and. You know this wild card game against the Chiefs at home, and it's it's hilarious and unbelievable uh, to see a running back with a double chin out there. <laughs> so, Chris, in this first half, whenever you're in the crowd in the stands, like, are there any plays that you really remember from this first half from the from the Houston's offense? Sure, I mean the the touchdowns just because of the silence in the stadium was great. Uh, there was a I think I think right at the beginning of the second Oilers possession. Moon hit Jeffries on a long pass, and I remember that one really well for some reason. Um, yeah, where he like jumped there, over Odoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, and, and just just the the silence in that crowd, like they were just so stunned because you know the Bills were just they were really good at home and so high powered, and they just they just don't get slapped around at home like that. So I I, I remember that well. It's just that that stadium was so old school. They that we were sitting on aluminum bleachers, you know, it was rainy. It wasn't pouring, but it was that sort of for me personally. You know that sort of like misting rain that annoys me more than regular rain. So I was just I was just freezing and miserable and just uh, it was it was you know it was a lot of fun obviously in that first half. But but yeah, I, I just I've, I have a I have a very vivid memory of the of the silence of that stadium every time they scored a touchdown. Yeah, and, and even like that first drive, I think the second play of the game they had a first down and like the crowd got like immediately quiet. Like it was kind of weird how fast it happened. But also in the second half, it's it's hilarious how like how much of a madhouse it gets like after that second touchdown to BB it's it's insane how how quickly they jump back up and the the entire game kind of changes as well too um the one yeah. thing I didn't like watching the broadcast view they didn't really show that many 
you know, other angles. I was just kind of confused, like, why everybody was so wide open, you know? Like, it's just like Jeffries jumping over Odom, and you have Duncan, like, running wide open post routes, and Givens kind of working those short routes and that sort of thing. But it just seems like that entire first half, every single player was open, and I don't believe they even knew how to play cornerback at all back then. It was like the corners just ran underneath the route, so then the safety could hit him in the head whenever the ball actually got there, and that was just kind of how they played uh, defense in the secondary back then. Well, I think we're going back to the adjustments that the Bills made, is that what they started doing is they, they kind of gave up on the concept of of what they I th- I, what I think they were trying to do is they were trying to play like an umbrella defense in the first half. They were trying not to get beat deep. In the second half, one of their adjustments was, we're going to keep the corners locked down, we're going to take away those flat throws, and we're going to keep a couple safeties deep, and we're going to get heavier. So they went to a, a completely different defense, which I think is what really threw off the offense, is that, you know, what were the Texans doing in the first half to be successful? Well, they were spreading the field. They were getting hitting throws out in the flat. They were trying to, you know, Buffalo couldn't decide if they're going to play man or if they're going to play zone. In the second half, they said, screw it. We're going to go basically man cover two. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what worked more effectively for them. I see what you're saying. Uh, and like, so the first half, like Buffalo's offense, I know Chris mentioned Thurman Thomas got hurt. And Thomas got hurt the hip injury, and you know he's a Hall of Fame player. And I've never watched him play at all before. But even like his first handoff he had, like he really like is just a lot faster and quicker than everybody on the field, and really jumped out immediately. I was like, oh, okay, I, I get this this sort of thing about Thomas being this great player and all that. You know, makes sense uh, from everything I've heard about him. But like Reich was awful and horrendous. I think he was awful and horrendous this entire game. He was just a lot more fortunate in the first half. But I think in the first half he was like you know, eight for 20 for, you know, 35 yards and one interception and really, I mean, just missing open throws. And I think one of the things Buffalo did well in the second half was, you know, I kind of moved the pocket more because Houston's pass rush really was able to get after him the first, in the, in the first half, William Fuller had a really great uh, club sack and on their defensive line, he was my, my favorite defensive lineman Houston had just because like, he's so long and he's kind of like a, a t- like a, a, he's kind of like a more of a modern defensive lineman than, some of these other guys that you kind of see out there too. Yeah, I had Doug Smith out there too. Big old 99 looking like 99. Looking like Suge Knight. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Sean Jones. 96 Sean Jones was one of my favorites. His long arms and he had personality for days. He was great in the locker room. I, I loved that defense. Like Ray Childress. Um, for for whatever reason, my favorite Oiler back then was Lamar Lathan, the linebacker. The monster. Uh, great, great aesthetic. He is such a great aesthetic. Yes, yes. I was a big fan of his. And uh, Bubba McDowell was one of my favorite players because, you know, back when they used to let you smash people, he was very, very good at that. So, uh, yeah, I really loved I really loved that defense a lot. You know, William Fuller was, was one of those guys who wasn't flashy, but he was consistent. You know, rest in peace. He passed away a few years ago. That's a shame. Uh, so yep. I know, like I know, Rachel Riss was a, I think, a top two pick. I think he was a second row pick out of A and M for third. Houston. Third, okay. Um, was he? Is he good? Because I was watching him. I was like, I know he's an All Pro and a Pro Bowler, but watching these three games, I really don't feel like he did very much. And I think he, I don't know, he seems more of like a name than an actual, like, really great football player. Um, even considering you know, the awards and all that. So BFD, what's your take on on Childress? My take on Childress is that he's a borderline Hall of Famer. I, I think he's a just barely a misser, but he was an interior guy who got all 70, I just looked it up, 76 and a half sacks over his career. 
he was a disruptive. He did a lot of things on the inside. I, a good comp, I think, was in the same game. Would be Phil Hansen. Would be a great comp for him. He was somebody who did a lot of the things, small things, that helped your defense be successful. He was, he he and Phil Hansen kind of started were the ones who started changing the defensive tackle position to become more of a pass rusher. Interesting. So maybe like a Calais Campbell type. Yeah, not as freak. You know. Yeah, not yeah. Freak. Yeah, but yeah, it's somebody who did something different on the inside. Whereas previously you had like the Elvin Mateas of the world and you had these, and Doug Smiths. Oh my God. I saw Doug Smith and I, I swear I got hard. And, uh, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> but, but Childress was a guy who was a penetrator. He was an under tackle, but he was a good penetrator. Yeah. So, so halftime, Chris, what's it like in the crowd? Like, is everybody just sad and somber and cold and you're having a great time and this is the best yeah. Christmas you're ever going to have? I remember uh, going to the bathroom during halftime and I mean, I couldn't hide my allegiance, obviously, with Oilers head to toe. I mean, I was wearing Oilers Zubas, for God's sake, <laughs> <laughs> with my starter jacket and everything else. So, uh, yeah, that was an adventure. The, the Bills fans were not kind um, at all. Which and, and don't and don't let me uh, don't let me don't let this podcast end without me talking about uh, what happened after the game, leaving the stadium. I want to get to that too, um, but yeah, halftime another very distinct memory, and there is actually videotape evidence of this. But uh, we brought the height of technology at the time, a VHS slim cam, and um, uh, either my mom or my dad was videotaping sort of a crowd shot of the stunned um, silence of the halftime crowd as people were like filing up, you know, to go get a beer, go to the bathroom or whatever. And you can actually hear my voice on the videotape talking to other Oiler fans saying, guys, let's not get too excited. Remember what happened in Denver last year? <laughs> Literally me on tape saying that <laughs> somewhere and, uh, and somewhere in, a, in, in my parents' attic or in my garage. I'm not sure that the tape is probably dead by now after all these Houston summers, but but yeah, that, that was a very distinct memory. It was, you know, the, the Oilers fans were extremely excited, obviously, high-fiving. Uh, the Bills fans were disgruntled and giving us, you know, the death look. Conditioning much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <That's awesome>. so, <laughs> so I was prepared, you know, mentally for this. But uh, when we get into talking about the third quarter, I will, I will, um, I will update my feelings on how I thought the game was going. Yes. So to start the third quarter on the first drive with 13 nights remaining, Frank Reich throws the interception. And what happened was he is a little high. It hits a tight end in the, in the hands. And I can't remember his name, but he's their second tight end. This wasn't Matt Salars, who uh, is their first tight end. It doesn't seem like a guy who's ever had a pass thrown to him. And maybe he hasn't had a pass thrown to him since, you know, 1984 or something. And it hits him in the hands and it's intercepted. And at least by uh, McDonald, who is their McDowell. 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 My bad. Yeah. Strong safety no, glove, McDowell. He picks it off. And then, like, I mean, it was, he, like, he not only, he didn't catch it staying still. Like, he charged the ball when he, pick it off, when he picked it off. And, like, full sprint, runs the end zone. And it's 35-3 to now. So, Houston's up 35-3 to with, you know, I guess 13, a little bit less than 13, 19 remaining. And so, now, after the pick six, Chris, like, I know that you had some sentiments at halftime. You know, don't get too excited. Don't get too carried away. Uh, yeah. What about 35-3? Does that change at all? Do you think it's over at that point? I, I stood up and screamed, it's over. We got this. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I, I played myself for sure on that. 
You know, after being the one sensible one, I, I ruined it. So I, I, all I wanted to do was to allow myself the eternal Houston sports cynic, one moment of hope, one moment of joy <laughs> is all I wanted. And so I let it fly. I opened my mouth and I let it fly. I'm not saying it's my fault, but I'm just saying that, you know, I, I just, I just wanted one moment of something nice as an Oilers fan. And, and, and well, you know what happened. If only you could spend eternity in that moment, you know, it's a shame that you can't. So BFT, yeah. what about you? It's 35-3 and you have a, a belly full of pizza rolls. Do you feel like they have it at that time? I thought we did. That, that was the, the last moment, I think, of happiness I had that entire game. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think the rest of the game, I honestly thought we were going to win. I thought when they when they started coming back and then we had some bad drops, uh, and you know, Greg Montgomery, oh my God. Yeah. So I, I think the the most absurd thing that I, I kind of found watching this second half was how immediate it flips. Where So after the pick six, Houston tries to do another squib kick like they did earlier in the game where with the bad win, it rolls into the end zone. There's no return. And Del Greco screws it up, and he accidentally kicks an onside kick instead. So Buffalo recovers. They've had no offense all this entire game. And they're able to start with the ball at their own at the 50-yard line instead of having to drive 80 yards or 75 yards. They have a short field to work with, and they immediately score a touchdown. And so on this drive, well, it wasn't immediate; like they had like an actual you know scoring drive. And on this drive, they actually had a pass where uh, Robertson dropped interception, and then it bounced off his hands, went to Metzalaris, and he was able to turn that into a big first down. And they ran a counter play on the one-yard line to score and make it 35-10. But it's just like. After all of that, after 35-3, you can like it's it's such a small screw up, but it ends up being like such an enormous one because from that point on, it's just kind of screw ups the rest of the way for Houston uh, to blow this lead and end up losing this game as well too. So I, I know BFD, you kind of mentioned that you had to go home because of uh, of how of how you felt felt this you know kind of turning your stomach. You thought it was getting up badly. Which moment was it that kind of gave you those? Uh, the sour death and, and death and doom feelings. See, I've been trying to remember what point, at what point did my heart break? And I've been trying to remember that. And what I think it was, I, I think it was maybe the BB touchdown. Is what I'm trying to think. I think that's the point where I was like, oh my God, everything's going against us. <laughs> because, I mean, it was, even watching the game live, you can see he had two feet out of bounds. And catches the touchdown pass. And it's just like, oh, my God. So that I think that was the point that broke me. Yeah, and, and even, like, before the BB uh, touchdown pass, the Bills did one of those, like, suicide onside kicks where the kicker kicks it to himself. But he didn't even do that good of a job at it. But it was able to bounce off a defender and go to him and have him recover. And the other thing about it, too, that was really dumb was Houston wasn't even lined up to defend the onside kick. They had... Five guys in the first line, then four, then you know two and one, like a typical kick return. So Buffalo recovers the onside kick, and then it leads to the BB touchdown. Um, and the BB touchdown, you see the cornerback kind of watch him run out of balance and then stop covering him and look towards the other side of the field because I think it's Dishman who, who's covering him. Because he, yeah, yeah he, because he runs entirely out of bounds, two steps, uh, wide open, and then he scores and it's 35-17. Um, Chris, like there at the game, I know I kind of talked to you about it. Like you had no idea that he went out balanced being there live and in person, right? Yes. What people fail to realize, I think here is that um, 
you know, it wasn't the stadiums of the modern age. They didn't have a live replay screen going. You know, they had a big screen, but they weren't putting, um, you know, live mm-hmm. replays on it. So I had no idea that the guy ran out of bounds. I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea of the atrocity that happened in the first drive at overtime. I, I didn't know any. I didn't know any of that stuff because I didn't have the benefit of replay uh, until I got home the next day and then watched the uh, the TV copy because a friend of mine recorded it on glorious VHS for me to watch. So I didn't even. I didn't. I, I didn't even have the proper amount of rage until the next day. It's 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 unbelievable. And also the other thing I like too about the stadiums is that you like I think it's uh, Buffalo's end zone. The two ads right between the field goal posts is a cigarette company and a beer company. So it's a Marlboro <laughs> sign and a Bush Light sign. And he's like, yeah, man, 90, 92 rocks. You know, whatever this is that we're living in, it, used, it seems like life used to be so much more fun. You know. And and am I wrong? What was OJ not the sideline reporter in that game? Or am I making? Yeah, that he's up? one of them. He's, yeah, one, he's of, one of yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They uh, they have two sideline reporters, one for each sideline. And the I was watching the Kansas City game today, and the other sideline reporter it was OJ, and then the other guy had a perm and a mustache and like a long curly like mullet perm. No Todd idea who the guy who Todd Christensen. Yeah, Todd, Todd Christensen. Yep. That guy rocks. Dudes rock. Todd Christensen rocks. <laughs> oh my god. It's just hilarious, like how like just disgusting. And I think also like how boring the '90s seemed. Whenever you go back and kind of look at it, too, at the same time, where like a lot, like a lot of the punk music from that time period, just about being bored and having nothing to do, you know. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, you can't just you know lay in bed and watch you know seven seasons of uh, of I don't know whatever over and over again. Um, so so BB has this touchdown, and it's it's unbelievable. And the only thing I knew about this game entering it. Was you? My dad told me it's like, yeah, it's it's a, you know, he told me it was a bullshit comeback because BB ran out, you know, the guy ran out of bounds for for Buffalo and scored a touchdown. And so I thought this that would have happened, you know, later on in the game, like a pivotal pivotal fourth quarter play or you know, maybe something in overtime or whatever. I had no idea that this was kind of the play that made it 35-17 and kind of spurned the whole uh, comeback too. Because I think one of the things that's important is that. Frank Reich, you know, he sucks. Like he's not, he's not very good at all. And so it's like every single instance they gave him any sort of break, I think was really monumental and important for Buffalo to be able to, to make the comeback that they did in this game. So let's go. I've talked a lot about the the bills and the adjustments they made defensively. So let's talk a little bit about what the Oilers did defensively and their adjustments. <laughs> so, so Jim Eddie in all his wisdom came out in the second half and went immediately to a prevent defense. So whereas we were being successful by pressing our corners and, and mostly keeping Andre Reed, you know, contained, we decided to drop our corners and play soft as all heck. Now, the problem with that is that, you know, Chris Dishman, press corner. Um, Steve Jackson, press corner. So we were asking our cornerbacks to do things they weren't good at at that in, in the entire second half. And so we went into this prevent defense in the second half. And that's ultimately, I think, what ruined the Oilers. And so you look at the, the Don Beebe touchdown, sure. But we allowed Andre Reed to run rough shot over us. And we made the we made adjustments to lose the game. The one thing. We, we, we can talk about who do who do we blame for losing this game. For me, it's it's Jim Eddy. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, because he's the one who made the dumbass decisions to 
let's do things differently in the second half. Instead, let's do things that we did well in the first half that shut the Bills down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looked really confused the entire time. Like, in, like every single time they show him the sideline, he just, you can't even see, like, even the whites of his eyes at all because he was just so, like, crumpled-faced and confused looking over there. Yeah, and the other thing I found kind of weird about um, Houston's defense, too, was, like, the way, like, Andre Reed was just open, and it looked like they had Steve Jackson playing underneath him with the safety supposed to help over the top. And, like, every single time there wasn't a safety open over the top at all. And so Andre Reed caught three touchdowns in that second half. Um, one to make the game 35-24. Another to make it 35-31. And then the the touchdown put him up before the end of the game to make it 38-35. And Andre Reed's, you know, Hall of Fame wide receiver, that sort of thing. But, like, he's not, like, making any moves. Like, he's just running post routes and seam routes where there's no guy within seven yards of him just catching wide-open touchdowns. Um, you know, Chris, from your vantage point way up there in the bleachers, like, could you see anything particular? Like, or is your memory just like uh, an impressionist painting of just Andre Reed riding with seven guys with like seven yards, like an aura of seven yards available around him? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really get into analyzing football until I was much older. So, I, you know, I, I don't I don't really I wasn't really looking for the things that need to be looked for. But I was cognizant enough to know what, you know, a prevent defense was like, like BFD was saying. And it's not just that he switched to the prevent. It's that it failed, not just over the course of the second half, but it failed immediately in the second half. So when that happens, stop it. Maybe that <laughs> could be something you maybe do is just to go back to what was working the first time. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't really looking for the things that I could have been looking for up there from that, you know, basically coaches film vantage point, but you know, you you definitely could see the body language of the uh, of the Oilers just going all the hell, you know, about halfway through the third quarter. That's that that was undeniable. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. So after after the BB touchdown, Houston went three and out because of a Duncan drop. Then Buffalo scored this 26 yard touchdown to Reed. Uh, he scored two more touchdowns after this as well, too. And so during this run, whenever Buffalo scores their next two touchdowns to Reed, Houston had an awful punt. They gave Buffalo the ball at their own 48-yard oh, line. Um, Al Smith and Steve Jackson had a play where combined, the ball hit both of their hands, that both of them dropped interception on this throw, and uh, and it ends up going out balance, and Buffalo ends up converting and scoring on that drive too. So they end the third quarter with Houston up only 35-31, and Warren Moon in that third quarter was 2 of 7 for 9 yards, 1 interception. And the interception was a high throw that bounced off his receiver's hands that was picked off. Um, so I know we BFD kind of mentioned about Houston's defense. Why do you think their offense struggled in the third quarter? Was it just because they only ran seven plays and have the ball that often? Uh, what did you see was kind of the issue with the with the offense during this like you know, big Buffalo run? I think the Bills took away the short game. So so again, the run and shoot was based upon we're going to use the passing game like the run game, so we can to you know establish the pass so we can run the ball. And so what the Bills did is they started pressing their corner. They did the exact opposite that we did. They adjusted positively. We adjusted negatively. They started pressing their corners and taking away that short game as much as they can. They were wrapping up their tackles. They were forcing Curtis Duncan and Ernest Givens, especially to three and four yard uh, you know, completions. And so what they did is they started forcing Moon to throw the ball deep, which he wasn't as successful as doing. They took away the Oilers short game. The one thing that the run and shoot 
in this era, the problem that it had is it could not adjust to that sort of thing. It was so reliant upon hitting those passes out in the flats, hitting those slants, that it could not do anything different. And so this was a perfect example of the Bills all of a sudden saying, hey, we're not going to let them get those five yards completions. We're going to take those away, and we're going to make them force the ball downfield, and Moon could not do that the game. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So so the fourth quarter, Houston's able to set themselves up to kick a short field goal and make the game 38-31. And I, I think of all the disastrous things, this one I, th- I think is probably the dumbest one. So Sam Montgomery's the punter. He drops the snap. <sighs> Buffalo recovers. Greg Montgomery. Yeah, and okay, my bad. I don't know who Sam Montgomery is. Oh, I think he actually played for the Houston Texans. He, he from, played for Texans. Yes. Yeah, from he was, LSU. He was. Well, he, uh, he cuts me. And, he, and, uh, and synthetic weed dick. He got yeah, uh, jettisoned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the game before Kansas City, him and like, uh, man, there was like three other guys. It was yeah, a bad linebacker. Running back from Notre Dame. I forget his name. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. Uh, my bad. But yeah, so. Montgomery drops this punt, and I went back and actually read what you know Peter King wrote about this game. And he interviewed Montgomery. He's like, "Yeah, well, right before the kick, the it just started raining out of nowhere, and you know usually it's pretty standard for the ref to drive the ball off, but he refused to. And we just had to go out there and do it. And I'm I'm not saying it's the rain's fault while I dropped it, but you know the ball was wet, and uh, Buffalo recovered, uh-huh. and Andre Reed goes uh-huh. on to score a touchdown, make it 38. <laughs> Uh, 35 at that point. I take, take no 30, responsibility. Take a lead 38, 35 that time. Yeah, no responsibility. I take no responsibility. <laughs> uh, so then ends after that point ends up working itself out where Houston actually has a good drive. Moon was able to convert convert on fourth and four by completing a deep pass to Slaughter. Probably I think his best throw. It was definitely like like a nut-dropping sort of throw that he he made a slaughter there. And with 12 seconds left on third and five, he tries to scramble, but is unable to convert. And then Del Creco kicks a short field goal to send the game in overtime. So, Chris, entering overtime, what's the what's the stadium experience like at this point? Well, I mean, the place was just wild from, from basically the second touchdown the Bills scored in the second half, or I'm, I'm sorry, in the third quarter. From until the end of the game, it was just it was just you know it was just bedlam the entire time. That place was just absolutely crazy. So um, again, you know, obviously then the overtime rules were different and did not did not think we had a prayer because I'd seen enough football, even at my young age, to know how these things play out when you're on the road and you give up a lead and then you you know you eke your way into overtime. Like we all knew how this was going to end. I think. Yeah, and so. Entering overtime, the Oilers actually win the kickoff. So they call tails. They get the ball first, and um, disaster, disaster struck pretty much right away. So BFD, what happens on this interception that Odoms that Odoms picks off? So I, I, you know, this is the sort of thing that that you know people, you know, Chris wouldn't have seen it unless you're you know specifically watching it while you're in the stadium. But when you see, even when I was watching it in real time, you could see what happened. But Daryl Talley held Ernest Givens. Yep. And so, it, and it was blatant. It was obvious it was blatant. And it didn't get called. It gets picked off. And uh, because it looked like the pass was to uh, Jeffries, I think was the other receiver in the area. Mm-hmm. But, oh my God, it was such an obvious hold. I mean, you know, if, my, if I touched my wife like that, she'd be upset. <laughs> <laughs> I just, hey, I and still, that, and that's, that's the whole reason why you get married, too. Right. 
I could not believe that was not called, even in real time. I was like, that's it. I mean, if, you, if they're not going to call BB out of bounds, if they're not going to call all these other BS penalties, I am like the last person who's ever going to blame the refs on losing a game. But this mm-hmm. is about as close as I'm ever going to come because, oh, my God, it was so obvious. And Tally still says today, oh, well, he was still within the five-yard limit. Uh-uh, girlfriend. <laughs> that was like nine, <laughs> ten yards out. No. Yeah, no. And you can oh. see Givens, too. Like, he's raising his arms, like, kind of screaming about it whenever, whenever the hold happens, too. And, like, you, I like watching it, I had no idea who Moon was throwing the ball to at all. Like, it doesn't make any sense the ball goes to Odoms, who's just, like, sitting on this underneath comeback route. No idea where it's going. And then they show the replay. You're like, oh, okay. You know, Givens right. is being tackled, you know, at 175 pounds compared to this 235-pound, you know, linebacker at this point. Um, so BFD, would you consider yourself a tally whacker then? Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to answer that one, Big Matt. I'm going to go, on, I'm gonna go on eBay and get you a shirt that says tally whacker with his number on the bag. Yeah, that was another one. That that was the other play I was talking about, Matt, that I, I didn't want to spoil it for you. But it was the, the two plays where the BB running out of bounds and then the tally basically dragging Ernest Givens to the ground almost. Uh, and man, I, I was so upset when I saw the BB touchdown on the, on the tape, but man, uh, amazingly, I finished the game on VHS when we came back and, and seeing that tally play, I just, I was just about as upset as I could possibly be at my age <laughs> yeah. about, about that play. And, and just, you know, screaming to anyone who would dad, come look at this, <laughs> dad, 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 dad. <laughs> You know, like I was just, I was just livid and obviously nothing could be done. Yeah. Well, and the other, so like the broadcast, the other weird thing that happens too is like, it shows some commercials, sometimes not, uh, but they actually show, they cut to the cuts, I guess, to the studio and it's Bob Costas and who still looks the same, by the way. Like, I wonder, I, hate what, Bob Costas. I, I wonder what blood he's drinking to still look how, how he looks right now. And Boomer aside, aside, who has like this like mullet, like really chiseled jaw. And they're talking about how, as the backup quarterback in Maryland, Frank Reich replaced starter Stan Gelbach, and they and Maryland was down 31-0 at the half, and Maryland ends up winning 42-40 against Miami, against Bernie Kosar, which was the the greatest comeback in a college D1 football game uh, until 2006 when Michigan State played Northwestern. And so here against Houston, Reich did this kind of the same thing after being down 35-3 and pulling it off down 31-0 in college as the backup quarterback as well too. And so it's like they cut into that, like 12 minutes left in the fourth quarter. And uh, you really like as a Houston fan, like I I think if I was BFD, I would have I would have thrown the TV out the window. Them showing that at that time where Houston still has a very slim lead. Well, I mean, this kind of goes back to the to the start of the conversation. You're as a Houston fan growing up, you were used to getting screwed. And it didn't matter if it was the Oilers, the Astros, the Rockets. I mean, you got to remember, the Rockets got screwed in 85, 86. I mean, there's this whole, the Arrows in 73. There's this whole history (laughs) of of Houston teams (laughs) getting screwed. And so, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, here we go again. Yeah. um, So I have a list of 14, like, kind of screw-ups misfortune here. uh, That leaves the Buffalo winning this game 41-38 in overtime. So the first is the miss-squib kick after the pick six that gave Buffalo great field position. The second was the Roberts interception, or the dropped Roberts interception lets the Metzelaris catch. Number three, Buffalo hey. returns the onside kick. Oh, hold on. 
Yeah, Ben Solaris is like, like one of the ugliest dudes to ever play professional football. I just want to go on the record and say that. Yeah, he's kind of <laughs> cool though, you know. Like it's cool how like much of a Frankenstein monster he is. God, dude's <laughs> ugly. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, so then number four, yeah, and I'll I'll post a picture of Metzalaris <laughs> whenever I po- come to the post because it like they don't make guys that look like that anymore, you know. It's it really is unbelievable. They're usually put to sleep when they're they're that ugly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they. Um, so number four, BB Renzel bounced them back in after the onside kick to make it thirty-five seventeen. Number five was the third and seven drop from Curtis Duncan. Number six was the blown coverage of Andre Reed's first touchdown and made it 35-24. Number seven was the high throw that was intercepted by all-pro Henry Jones. Number eight was the fourth and five touchdown to Andre Reed. And actually at that touchdown, I don't know who the announcer is, but I guess he played receiver for Oakland. And he spends the whole time talking about how they have to kick a field goal here. And then they immediately score a touchdown. Christensen. Yeah, I don't like Todd Christensen then, if that's him. Yeah, he was uh, tight end, I think. Yeah, he's like they have to they have to kick a field goal here. I was like, no, they don't. They're down by you know two scores. They need to go for it. Uh, number nine was the awful punt. They gave Buffalo the ball at their own forty-eight. Number ten was the Alice Smith Steve Jackson dropped interception. Number eleven was the Jeffries dropped touchdown in the end zone. And it's a tough catch, but like like you mentioned, like his he doesn't fully extend it all. He's like afraid to get hit. Um, number twelve was the fumble field goal hole by Mon- by Montgomery. Number 13 was the Andre Reed seam touchdown where I have no idea what the coverage is. It made 38-31. And the number 14 was Moon being intercepted over time. So, Chris, looking back at all these moments, all 14 of these uh, unfortunate errors, which one do you think started the comeback? And you know, which one hurts the most now looking back at it? For me, it's still the BB touchdown because it's just, you know, I, I, I'm like BFD and I'm sure like you too. Matt, I, I, I'm never, ever going to be a guy to blame the refs. And, I mean, this is no different. You, you have a 35-3 to 3 lead. You should win the game, period, the end. But, I mean, I, that, that, that play still haunts me. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are rules, so let's actually play by the rules. And that just, to, to me, that's, the most, that's just the most egregious one. Um, followed closely, probably, for me by... That uh, that fourth and five Andre uh, Andre Reed touchdown because that just like you know that got him within one score and if there was any chance the Oilers were going to squash that comeback it it would have been there um, but I mean I you know I got to be honest you know it, it once they basically got their second touchdown in the third quarter I, I'd seen the Oilers enough and of course you know with what happened in Denver the year before to kind of know what was coming because we had already seen that they were running that prevent defense. Uh, the Oilers on offense were getting stymied, but they also, it's its weird. The Oilers were aggressive by nature because they were running shoot, but they also did a lot of short passes. And and the Oilers went for it on fourth down a couple of times in this game. And I don't recall them being the type of team that went forward on fourth down at all mm-hmm. back in the day. That was just like playoff specialty. So, uh, you know, their, their sort of lack of aggression on offense, their, their uh, inability to sort of change it up on offense in the second half. Like, I, I you know, I kind of knew what was coming there, but, uh, getting back to the question, for me, it was definitely the BB touchdown. Mm-hmm. What about you, BFD? Uh, it's the BB touchdown. It's really the one but the, that uh, started the comeback. But the one that hurts the most is still that tally hold because it was, to me, I mean, there were some egregious penalties in the NFL, and that was so, like, super egregious. It was like, oh, my God, how can you not call that? Anyway. <laughs> so I think I think mine 
I, I'm the, the what I'll remember, you know, whatever, whatever ever happens. I think what I'll remember about this game most was like, because I know what happens in hindsight was the, the squib kick miss. And it's just because, you know, going up 35 to three and like, you know, the comeback happens, but to, after the pick six for the first play immediately afterwards to be such a big screw up, to get Buffalo a good field position after having no field position the entire game and constantly starting drives at their own 20 yard line after all the touchdowns to like give Reich actually a chance to, you know, only need 50 yards to score. Uh, that's what I'm going to remember for being like, I mean, like it's, it's weird. It's like, it's so small that becomes so important whenever you, whenever you understand what the end is going to be at the end of it. And, uh, I, it, it really is unbelievable though. Like just immediately the first play after the pick six gives them a, a drive start on their own 50 yard line to, to give them a short field to make something happen. So big Matt. No. So let's go. I'm going to toss this one to you, uh, Watkins. Mm-hmm. Which player do you hate the most from this Buffalo team? Oh, oh man. What a question. Um, Man, I hated a lot of those guys, especially after that game. I got to say, for me, it was Andre Reid. He just, he just annoyed me because he killed us so much. You know, he, he just he, – he always slipped in the seam. He always found the soft spot in the coverage. Like, the guy was just always running wild all over us constantly. So, uh, he, was, he was definitely one of my most hated players in the league. And, of course, Don Beebe, through no fault of his own, <laughs> he did exactly what I would have done in that situation. But it's just a it's just a sore spot for me. Yeah. So BFD is it is it Tallywhacker for you? Is that your most hated player from this Buffalo team? It honestly, I, I it as weird as this is gonna sound, I did not come out of this game with any hate for the uh, any Buffalo player. I thought they all played well. I thought they all battle fought. Um, <laughs> Kenneth Davis. I mean, we talked about Thurman Thomas being out. Kenneth Davis played a hell of a game. Uh, he was a dude from TCU, very upright runner, very yeah, Eric so Dickerson kind of guy. Oh, so good. So um, I, I did not hate any Buffalo player coming out of this game. Yeah, I was way more mad at the Oilers than I was. I wasn't mad at the Bills. I was mad at the Oilers. Yeah. <laughs> I, see, for, me, for, for me, it's Frank Reich just because him and Indy, like, I don't think he's really even been that great of a coach in Indy, but he has this reputation of being uh, like already like being some super genius head coach for – you know, whatever reason. And I, I don't really understand that. And also like, I just don't like watching him play. I don't think he's very good. I don't like how pale he is. And not only is he pale, he has like the <laughs> contrast of being pale with really thick eyebrows. And there's just something really unsettling about, about his whole persona and, and just like the way he looks out there on the field. I mean, uh, the, no, you're, you're, you're right. It, he does. It does annoy me too, that he was sort of weirdly anointed as a genius. As soon as he got the job, in Indy, you know, I, I just, that was just a really strange, like they sort of stumbled backwards into that hire after, uh, what was it? McDaniels took the job mm-hmm. and then refused the job. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, uh, it's just funny. The connections that some of these things have, like you said, you know, we had Kubiak holding the game winning field goal in the Broncos game. You got Frank Reich still in the league, you know, now haunting us twice a year, hopefully, well, hopefully not haunting us twice a year, but you know, it just this this game will just always be a part of the fabric of every Houston football fan's life. <laughs> yeah, and I guess like whenever you have pl- players who become coaches, and especially backup quarterbacks, usually become coaches, and they all kind of you know they all kind of repeat themselves. I guess eventually again, and you know I can't wait to watch Ryan Mallett be the head coach one day, and 
Uh, that'll be a, <laughs> oh, really, that'll be a really fun thing <laughs> that happens. Shut so, your mouth. Shut your mouth. All right, so BFD, <laughs> I know you mentioned this parallel universe you wish you were living in whenever we started the show. Um, if they did beat Buffalo, do you think Houston would beat Pittsburgh the following week? And what about Oakland, the AFC championship game? I think in a perfect world, in a perfect Oilers world, we would have beat Pitt and we would have lost to Oakland. Because it, it was just, you know, the, the fact is, is that, that Kevin Gilbride would panic. Jim Eddy would panic. Somebody would panic on the, one of the coaches would panic. And Party can do anything about it. Because he, he, I think at this point, especially of his career, he was just kind of hands off. And he was letting Eddie and he was letting uh, Gilbride do their things. And I think that's what also led to the um, implosion the next year is that, you know, party party was a little more than a figurehead at that point. So I just, yeah, I, I, I had no hope. I had no optimism for those teams. Do you, it's like, so do you think party was a good coach? Like why, like what, why did this keep happening for Houston? Is it just Bud Adams and it's an Indian burial ground that Ashram is built upon (laughs) Is it because Party wasn't like a, a strong enough, you know, voice and a strong enough manager of the team and not a strong enough personality? Like, why did this happen for seven straight years to Houston? I'm going to well, say, I, go, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, I, I, you know, this is one of those things that a lot of football fans get upset about where they say, man, they need a coach with some fire, you know, hire Bill Cower. He'll get, a, you know, light a fire under that. I have no idea if that actually is a thing or not. But Jack Pardee is the poster boy of that kind of head coach that is the opposite of the guy who fires you up. The dude literally stood there on the sideline, clapped his hands, and he did this thing with his, you know, one with his index finger sticking out where he would just sort of like spin, like as if he's like mimicking keeping the clock <laughs> running. That was like his only move. He would clap and he would do the keep the clock moving thing. And that was it. Like, and, and I know <laughs> at some point, maybe BFD, maybe you, maybe you remember this too. It, it, I don't remember how this came out. I don't know if it was like a, if it was a former player on the radio, uh, on the radio many years later, but it came out that in several of these games, Jack Party's headset wasn't even connected to anything. It was just for the, for the aesthetic, just for the visual. He wasn't doing anything on the headset. He just, he just, like you said, he was a figurehead. I have no idea if he was motivational or if he is like one of these, like basically coach chaplain kind of guys who is like very religious and tries to bring guys together. I don't know. But he he seemed to have the personality uh, of, you know, sort of a wet wet paper bag. I'm not trying to, like, slam the guy or anything, but I just always remember thinking, you know, are you going to do something about this or are you just going to kind of continue to spin your hand around and clap your hands? Yeah, for me, it was all it was Kevin Gilbride. Well, okay, so in 90 in this game specifically, it was it was Eddie not being able to adjust. But I also gave a lot of fault to. When you build your roster, you should at least be able to do certain things. And where the run and shoot failed was especially in short yardage situations. When the, when the field got small, and we saw it in this Bills game, when the field got small, they struggled. And if you're, mm-hmm. a head, if you're an offensive coordinator, if you're Kevin Gilbride, you need to be able to adjust to that, and they could not do that. Yeah, it's a good point because like it does seem like they couldn't stop the run very well. And also, they missed something like third and ones and fourth and ones and third and threes, you know, it's, it almost kind of felt like third and eight was the better spot for them to be. And then like fourth and short and third and short like that. Right. I was also so, going to bring up too, like you guys watched the game and, and 
I started it. I wasn't able to finish it, but I've had it on the back in the background muted this entire time. Did it not drive you guys absolutely crazy to not have the permanent bug on the screen the entire time that showed the time? Yes. This driving me nuts. I love that. It's crazy. Oh man, I can't. And you know, I, I don't really, I don't miss, I don't miss the first down marker at all. But to not have the score and the time on the screen at all times just is driving me nuts. <laughs> I love the empty screen. Take all that stuff off there. I just want the announcers to tell me, you know, what it is and look at the signs and everything on there. <laughs> but it's kind of funny in that game because I think with like two and a half minutes left, then they turn the scoreboard on and now it's there in front of you the entire time. Uh, so the following season, after this whole thing happened, the Oilers fire the defensive coordinator. Um, the guy BFT, what's his name again? BFT? Jim Eddie. Yeah, so they fired Jim Eddie, a very confused man who played prevent defense. They hired Buddy Ryan, <laughs> and then this created this immediate conflict in the locker room. Uh, because I've watched the America's Game version of, or a football life <laughs> version of this, and it yes. said pretty much that Buddy Ryan cre- created a separate team, so the defense and offense were constantly fighting against one another. Um, the entire season, but somehow they start off slow. They won 11 games in a row. They lost to Kansas City in the postseason. And then after this, they had a salary cap, and um, I guess Bud Almsbridge said, "Like if you guys don't do it this year, we're going to split the entire team up." And then the fans stopped sh- showing up. They went two and 14 the following year with Carlson at quarterback. Fire party. Uh, it eventually leads to Jeff Fisher coaching the team. They draft Steve McNair. They go seven nine his first year with uh, Fisher as the head coach. It's hilarious. And then they end up moving the team in 96. So if they do win this game, and this was a quote from, from Ernest Givens himself after the loss to Buffalo. I think this game will break this team is what he said to Peter King after the game. Do you think if they won this game or if they beat Kansas city that the next year, or if they at least went to an AFC championship, the Oilers would have you know, got this new stadium made, Bud Adams happy and never have left. Or Chris, do you think this was just like, you know, inevitable because of, they kind of disdain that everybody had for Adams at the time. I mean, it seemed like it was inevitable because there were long drawn out conflicts with Bud Adams and the city. You know, I remember when he was threatening to move the team to Jacksonville way back in the day before the Jacksonville Jaguars were a thing. Um, the the fight was just so constantly ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was constant. Um, and honestly, like I, I don't remember the seating that year from the from the Bills game. Like if the Oilers had won that game, if they would have been in Pittsburgh or if they would have been in Houston, I, I don't remember. But again, they weren't they weren't a great road team. So unless they were going to be at home, I would not have picked them to to win. You know, any of the following games after that either. Um, but yeah, the the Bud Adams thing started to feel like an inevitability. But I do remember when you know the talk started getting louder and louder about them moving i never ever for once believed it was going to happen i had just been conditioned to bud adams using it for leverage constantly and then i think the thing that started getting me worried i'm sure you remember this bft there was a preseason game in the dome and they canceled the game because the field was in such poor yeah. condition and then like you know but uh, they, they started there's a bunch of people that threw a fit over that and it just kind of seemed like after that it really started to go downhill quickly and they had a rally to keep the Oilers in Houston, and like 30 people showed up. <laughs> it was just this really sad thing. <laughs> yeah, the, the what I'll add to that is I think when Bud Adams fired Bump Phillips, he lost the entire city of Houston. Um, Bud was routinely booed whenever he would show up, do a public appearance, whenever he'd go to an Oilers game, and they'd say, oh, here's Bud Adams. He was booed. I mean, it was the entire stadium getting into it. Nobody liked Bud Adams. Everybody thought Bud Adams was an, was 
I know we're not supposed to cuss on this podcast, but everybody thought he was an asshole. Mm-hmm. And so I think that no matter what the Oilers would have done, if the Oilers, let's say, if the Oilers, Oilers would have won that game, they would have gone on and, and gone to the Super Bowl and lost, then Bud would have just asked for more money. Yeah. And so I don't think it was ever going to change. I think it was always going to be, Bud was going to move the team regardless because he was always going to go, there is nothing that was more important to Bud Adams than money. Not loyalty, not not the franchise, not anything. Bud Adams was loyal to cash, and that's mm-hmm. it. So it was going to happen regardless, I think. What yeah. was that? Was that brown thing on his head? Was that a toupee, or did he just tie his hair brown like that? Oh God! <laughs> I don't know what that was. He wore that rat on his head for years. Everybody knew he was. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know if he died it or if that was just something he he paid like ten thousand dollars for. Yeah. At like a truck stop in Arkansas, you know. <laughs> he he Bud Adams was a ridiculous figure. He was so he was arrogant, he was narcissistic, he was a he was a cartoon character out of his time. Yeah, he's a Scooby Doo villain for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the first question we have is from at Vinny Vitti Vici, and he was kinda asking about, you know, if he thought uh, Houston would have left. They beat Buffalo in '94. If they be, or if they beat Buffalo in '92 or beat KC, and we kind of answer that. The other question is from Carlos and Chris. He asked, "Is getting punched in the ear a top five worst places to get punched in Canada? Or is that is getting punched <laughs> in the ear a top five worst place get punched <laughs> candidate?" I think especially when it's a uh, when it's old man Buddy Ryan punching you in the ear, it's it's got to be one of the worst places you can. I, I'm very curious as to where that punch was, was intended to land. <laughs> yeah, it was an awful punch you threw. Just a terrible one. I and wish I like, I really like Gilbride too. too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like Gilbride too. And he ended up being the offensive coordinator in the giants and won Super Bowl with them. But I like Gilbride. I really didn't like uh buddy Ryan at all. Well, it's kind of funny that KC game was ever that Titan scores a touchdown, throws the ball at his face and that sign. <laughs> and that was a really good kind of FU moment. <laughs> right. What about you, BFD? You like getting punched in the ear at all? Oh, I'm old. I don't like getting punched anymore. It's too tough. Yeah, I I don't know. I've never been punched in the ear before. I've been hitting the head of the golf ball by the ear. I've been hitting the head instead of playing football before like that. But never punched. Um. So at the end of the day, Chris, like, what's your legacy of these Moon Oilers teams? Like, are you are these teams just kind of like maybe the early 2000s Sacramento Kings or? The early 2010s uh, Texas Rangers, or uh, you know, one of these other teams <laughs> who were you know really beautiful and a lot of fun, but they never won a championship. God. Like, what's your legacy of them? And also, who's your favorite player from these teams too? Uh, well, I, you know, I was a big, like I mentioned earlier, I was a big Lamar Lathan fan. Um, and and of course, there's no way you couldn't love Warren Moon. I mean, Warren Moon was just he was fun to watch. You know, he 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 just. He he was so deadly accurate. You know, he had a game against the Chiefs in Kansas City where he threw for 527 yards once, and it, at the time I think it was the second most yards in the history of the game. It might still be number two. I'm not sure. Um, so it, it you know it's hard to overlook it's hard to overlook Moon. But uh, the legacy of this team, sadly, is this game for me. Now for me, obviously, it was a little bit more so because I was there and I have all those memories attached to it. But, uh, but yeah, the, their playoff performances just kind of spoke for themselves. They were always very disappointing. Uh, and, you know, those, that, that, that trifecta of those three years in a row, basically, where they lost to Denver, Buffalo, and then Kansas City just, I mean, it's just 
constant heartbreak. And, you know, the Kansas City game was different because I expected them to win that game, um, which is, you know, in contrast to the other two games. So, yeah, playoff disappointment, um, overachieving regular season team, underachieving, underachieving postseason team is, is, is the Oilers' legacy for me. What about you, BFG? I, I, I knew you were going to throw it to me, and I still don't even have an answer for you. That's how difficult of a question this <laughs> is for me. Um, it's Whenever I think Oilers, I just think heartbreak. Yeah. Um, it's just I, I can't disassociate it. I mean, again, I go back. When I started watching the Oilers play football, they were some of the absolute worst teams in NFL history. I mean, let's not even mince words. I mean, this is pre-Earl Campbell days. These are really terrible teams. Mm. And then as I'm as a kid growing up and all of a sudden, oh, my God, we got my hero. Earl Campbell's on the team. And then we still can't, you know, progress in the playoffs. And the Oilers were like, what it must be like being married to me is just a constant disappointment. So it's, it's <laughs> tough. It's, it's really tough. I, I do want to answer because I, I want to follow on, with, up on uh, what Chris said. But he asked who my favorite player on that team was that played the Bills that day. I had two. It was Ernest Givens. It was LeMonster Lathan. Those two guys are great. And number three on special teams, Eugene Seal. Eugene Steele. Oh, I remember like a little like a roll, uh, a bowling ball number fifty three coming down the sideline. That's all he did, and he was great at it. Um, I, and also, I just wanted to add to on the legacy end of it. I, I I have to mention too. Just you know, we had my 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 parents and I. I'm I'm an only child. My parents and I had season tickets for uh, those those three seasons: the the Denver season loss, the Buffalo loss, and the KC loss. Or maybe it was the year before that. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but we had them for three seasons during consecutive seasons during the run shoot era. And I mean, those are some of the best memories of my life, like bonding with my parents and, you know, my dad and, and watching the games when they're on the road and going to the games. We used to go to we used to come back after the home games on uh, I-45, um, um, the Papacitos location. That was always where we'd go after the game. So we'd show up after the home games and all our Oilers gear. And there'd usually be a bunch of other people, too, that had just come from the game. So that was kind of like a tradition for us. So those those were like really some of my best childhood memories honestly was was uh was those Oilers years but as far as the football goes it was just it was just pain <laughs> <laughs> well and I think what's kind of funny like you know listening all talk about this and kind of also seeing like this sentiment too with the Texans right now where like a lot of the you know people starting to talk about the Texans on the internet and stuff are you know maybe like 16 years old 19 years old 22 years old like people who don't really understand that even like as a Texans fan the history of Houston football is that the team's probably going to be bad and they're going to be stupid and they're going <laughs> to hurt your feelings. They're going to disappoint you. But because these like this younger you know, group of uh, this next ba- batch of people who are like, you know, gaining consciousness and it's no longer this island that succumbs to the ocean, they only really know Deshaun Watson whenever it comes to Houston Texans football now. And so they don't really understand like how this usually is and how this usually works. And so now you, now you get these absurd ideas that, um, replacing DeAndre Hopkins with seven players who are not nearly as good as him is actually is a, a good thing. So Deshaun Watson <laughs> doesn't just have the best receiver in football to throw to is always open, you know, and, or like David Johnson's can be rejuvenated in Houston because uh, he's wanted here now and they can throw <clears> him the ball and whatever, you know, whatever else, like all these kind of like insane theories or um, 
that Lonnie Johnson Jr. has become a top 10 cornerback this year because he's been posting uh, work, footwork videos on Twitter, you know? And so it's like, right. this, it's not how that wor- this works at all, you know? It never has, it never will. And uh, like as good as like Watson is and everything else, it's just kind of funny to see like how this, like this like cynicism that I've kind of learned watching the team. And then also like I, it's, and even that is just like a bunch of dumb regular season losses and bad teams in the regular season. Like there hasn't really been any like postseason trauma aside from that Kansas City game, which it was pretty much expected at the time. You know, there's a lot of really lucky things to happen for Houston to have a 24 point lead in that game. Um, and then they also did some really dumb things too to to blow that lead in that game, like on their own end by kicking that field goal and the fake punt and whatever else too. But it's like that cynicism and like that realism, it's like such a direct clash and compared to you know the fans now that have what like are used to watching Watson play and it'll be interesting to see what happens this year and you know with Watson's career if he's actually able to be the the player who can like you know get this like cursed you know uh misery like off off the franchise back and I guess Houston history uh football history in general as well too and it's just really kind of bizarre just to see this like direct conflict and difference between the two now yeah they'll never know pain the way that BFD and I know pain. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you like the if you like the Rockets, if you like the Astros during that period, we just we've we've seen the worst of the worst that sports has to offer. Oh yeah, the Astros fans, and I love my Astros fan. I'm one of them, but yeah, they, the ones who are growing up with this era of Astros baseball, I mean, no, you can't. <laughs> you, you, the, 1986 NLCS, sit through that and then get back to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think the worst thing about like a bad baseball playoff loss is like you sit there for four and a half hours and it's just like you're having a heart attack for oh. you know four and a half, five hours. And it is baseball playoff baseball is the most stressful sporting event there is for me personally. Yeah. I think it's because there's no clock. Like there's you know, there's just you're at the mercy of, of the game. <laughs> well, and that I mean, game that game six, man. That game six. Oh my god. I w- when I went to the gym like three weeks ago, they had game six, uh, Texas, St. Louis on one of the televisions and I had like a visceral reaction. I was like, I'm going to vomit <laughs> as like, I need. And so like, I went to a different part of the gym where I could, well, like, luckily it was the first inning. So I watched like the first four innings or so and Colby Lewis was dealing. And I was like, I, if they, if it hits inning six, I got to get out of here and go home. Cause I am like saving that game for a day where I'm just going to like, I don't know, get blackout drunk by myself and watch it and, and cry on the floor, you know, uh, maybe after maybe, I don't know. I'm just, I haven't sitting in my back pocket for a really bad day. Um, so Chris, my, my last question, I want to end the show with, uh, what happened after the, this game, what happened on the way of the car after Houston lost to Buffalo? Okay. So, uh, we actually got dropped off pretty close to the stadium when we arrived at the game, but at the end of the game, our bus was literally at the very back of the parking lot. And most of our cluster, our, our cluster of people that we were with were all way up in the, in the bleachers. So what I'm getting at is the, ba- the stadium had you know, largely emptied by the time we got out to the parking lot. And you want to talk about a long walk through the hordes <laughs> of celebrating Bills fans, all dressed up head to toe in nothing but Oilers gear. Man, the abuse. Oh, man, it was bad. Like, the Bills fans were not kind. They were not sympathetic. They were horrible. I mean, they were just, they were just horrible. 
So that, that's another thing I'll never forget was that basically that walk of shame. And, uh, and, you know, the bus had been decorated up a little bit too. So when we left, the people could see the bus. They could see their Oiler fans on the bus. And so we were um, getting stuff thrown at us. We were getting obscenities yelled at us. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it, it made for a complete experience. And, you know, the thing that I didn't really think, uh, think about is, you know, obviously I'm from Houston. I don't have a whole lot of cold weather clothing. It's not like I bothered to pack more than one jacket. So the only jacket I had for the whole trip was my Oiler starting jacket, starter jacket. Well, we had a layover in Chicago on the way back from Buffalo. And so I'm in the, I'm in the Chicago airport in my Oiler starter jacket and just taking a whole new round of abuse from people, you know, clowning me for uh, being an Oilers <laughs> fan. <laughs> so it was just a long, sad, drawn out. It just, you know, it, it's just like getting bled dry on the side of the road and just being left there. And like, it's like a gut wound. <laughs> That's awful. And it, I don't even know. I, don't, I haven't been to any. Well, I guess I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be like a, a sports fan in that situation now, like how badly you get taunts and abuse, unless you're at like a, you know, an Angels Dodgers game or something where it can get kind of frightening or whatever. But um, it, does, it does sound like a different time period. Those sort of things happen as well, too. Um, BFD, is there anything that you want to add before we stop talking about this? And you can go ahead and put deep down the, the dark recesses of your heart for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh, you don't want to get that deep. Uh, no, I, I just think. Um, The thing that keeps coming back to me when I think about this game is that this was the moment in time that Miss, Miss BFD realized she was making a mistake, and <laughs> she's still regretting that to this day. So there you go. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I, I well, think what I was just gonna say this is actually perfect because, like I said, I have the game on in the background, and the tally hold and interception just happened. So it's it's gonna end right when our podcast does. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's it's synchronicity. Uh, I guess the one thing I, I kind of think about or one of the things that I liked about is every single summer as you know, whenever we get close to the football season, I'm like, do I really want to do this again? Like, do I want to spend 20 <laughs> weeks watching football and, you know, staying up till 1230 writing things that, you know, nobody ever reads. Do I want to keep doing the podcast? Do I keep doing this? And then what, for whatever reason, like something always happens that makes me interested again. And I, I haven't even started reading season preview stuff because I don't know what's going to happen this season. And, Hopefully there's a season, but one of the things that's happened, you know, going back and watching some of these old games is I kind of remember that like, yeah, I really like football and it's, it's really good and it's fun and it's enjoyable. And hopefully we have a, a season. I don't know what's going to happen there with it, but you know, in a weird way, watching the Oilers, like, you know, crap their pants for these three straight games has maybe kind of really appreciated, uh, enjoy football all over again, you know, <laughs> that's good. I'm glad you're taking something away from it like that because you know, we're not getting any good vibes rewatching this BFD and I at all. So I'm glad it's serving you somehow. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Well, I'm it, glad it's all about you, Matt. <laughs> well, of so course, happy. of course, of course. Uh, well, so until next time, hopefully we have a show next week. If not, we'll have a show in uh, three weeks whenever I get back from uh, walking a big circle around Big Dumb Mountain, and then we can do some season preview stuff and. I guess act like there's me a football season. I don't know oh, what's well. going to happen or not. Uh, but we'll we'll preview the AFC South at least and talk about some interesting players and whatever else. Uh, but until next time, I'm Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Bell Radio. And thank you for, for being on tonight, Chris and BFD. And once again, I'm sorry for uh, making you relive the nightmares in the past <laughs> like this. Thanks, Woo-hoo. guys. That was fun. <laughs> Thank you.
thought it was pretty good. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.